Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living today. With Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. To ask questions or join in the discussion, email us at the Yoga Hour at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, here's your host, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning and welcome to the Yoga Hour, a time to open our hearts and minds to the infinite. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien while she's away. Today I'll be sharing some insights and time-tested practices from the ancient system of Kriya Yoga. Yoga is a Sanskrit word that means oneness, union, or unity. The bringing together of our attention and awareness with our essential spiritual nature to be restored to our original wholeness. Many people today associate the term yoga only with exercise, but yoga is actually a a much wider system, including philosophy and practice uh, for spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. Today, our topic is realizing happiness through yoga. I think we'd all like more happiness in our life. What tools does yoga offer that can help in this pursuit? Yogic practices illuminate the stillness within us that cannot be threatened by outer circumstance. When we nurture our connection with this inner stillness, we, discu- we can re- discover our innate joyfulness. Today I'm joined by Sam Chase, the author of the book, Yoga and the Pursuit of Happiness, A Guide to Finding Joy in Unexpected Places. Sam is co-owner of Yoga to the People in New York City, where he leads weekly yoga programs for everyday people and diverse organizations, including New York University and the United Nations. He received his master's degree at Harvard's ART Institute and certificates in yoga and positive psychology from the Kripalu Center. His website is samchaseyoga.com, which is just S-A-M-C-H-A-S-E, yoga.com. Welcome, Sam Chase. I'm delighted that you could join us today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you. It's a pleasure to chat with you today. 
I also wanted to take a moment to congratulate you on the addition to your family, your new daughter that was just born. Oh, thank you. She's 10 days old right now and uh, (laughs) shockingly sleeping quite well. (laughs) Well, I know how, how busy a household is with a newborn, so congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Before we begin to enter into our dialogue about realizing happiness through yoga, let's start with a moment of meditation. Let's take this moment, this yoga moment, to turn our attention within. Any time of our day can be a yoga moment. All we need to do is to bring our attention and awareness to the present, wherever we are. Let's begin by taking a fully conscious breath, just noticing as we inhale and exhale. Not trying to change it, just noticing the breath's natural flow. Cool air entering the nostrils. And warm air flowing out. In this moment, we drop into our inner depths and open our heart to the divine. One reality, called by many names, is the support and substance of all that is. Right where we are, right here, and right now, this divine essence is present. As you, as me, as everyone. within us, between us, and all around us. Just by being present now and noticing, we can rest in this essence of our being. We notice thoughts and feelings as they arise and as they pass away. We become aware of our essential nature beyond words and thoughts, beyond all change, beyond thought and sensation. Pure existence being We feel the peace that emanates from the essence of our being. We allow that peace to pervade the mental field, the emotional nature, and the physical body. We abide in this peace and let it overflow as blessing for all beings 
everywhere. So once again, Sam Chase, welcome to the Yoga Hour. Thank you. Kriya Yoga Master Paramahansa Yogananda wrote, Do not make unhappiness a chronic habit, thereby affecting yourself and your associates. It is blessedness for yourself and others if you are happy. So given your recent book about yoga and happiness, how did, how did you become interested in that topic? Uh- well, you know, in some ways, I think I was one of the least likely candidates for a yoga practice. Uh, I grew up uh, comically unathletic and really bookish and probably hyper-rational. Um, and I had graduated uh, at the top of my high school class and was about to graduate at the top of my college class. I was studying economics at the time. And I was invited to apply for... Um, a fellowship, a Rhodes Scholarship and a Marshall Scholarship, and uh, got a call from the British consulate that should have been the best call I ever received, telling me that I had won. And instead of being thrilled, I threw up and had a panic attack. And uh, totally by surprise, realized that I just could not stand to stare down four or 40 more years of a career in that field, though there was a lot that I loved about it. Um, And it kind of started a little cycle of despair. And in the midst of all that, I I got it into my head that I wanted to learn to be able to touch my toes, which was never a possibility for me growing up. Uh, I was pretty down and out, and that seemed like the highest sort of aspiration that I could reach to at the time. And one of my friends suggested a, a yoga class to me which was a real struggle in the start. Uh, My toes seemed farther away than I ever remembered them being. Uh, I was being asked to breathe and focus in a way that I had never done before. Uh, But I noticed that it was working. Very soon I could touch my toes. Within a few months, my asthma, which had plagued me since I was very, very little, really started to subside. And over the years, I began to really get acquainted with that part of me that sort of rose up to reject the career that I had so carefully plotted out uh, at the end of college and then had to run away from. And uh, But there was a part of me that was still sort of empirical enough that even though I could feel a yoga practice really working and making a difference in my life, I wasn't going to believe it unless I had some hard scientific evidence for it. Uh, And when I started to look around for that, there was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, not nearly as much research in the field of yoga as there is now. Uh, It was really just starting to become something that received serious scrutiny. At the same time, I had gone into graduate school, um, and I was at Harvard studying theater, actually, at the time. After I bailed out on economics, I went in that direction. 
but I wasn't going to let an opportunity like being at Harvard go to waste. So when I wasn't in theater classes, I was sneaking into other classes all over the university. And at the time, they had the most popular class at Harvard had like hundreds of people in it. And it was a class on positive psychology and happiness taught by Tal Ben-Shahar. And I figured there were so many people in that class, they wouldn't notice if I just snuck in and sat at the back. So that whole semester, uh, I sort of uh, cheated my way <laughs> into that class and uh, immediately discovered that there was a lot of overlap between the scientific study of happiness and well-being and, and what the practice and philosophy of yoga was holding out for everyday folks. And uh, that's really where it started for me. It's sort of through the valley of a little despair at the end of my college career and and into the following years as I started to sense that there's a, there's a really rich conversation happening between uh, a sort of modern scientific approach to happiness and well-being and these ancient traditions of yoga and contemplative practice. Which is such a great, uh, a great, um, you know, seed for our conversation today, which is why we wanted to have you on the show. So you start out uh, in the book and, um, you know, talk about, you know, happiness as being such a central motivation and, and that when we look at our desires and ask ourselves why is it is that we want what we want, the answer that we arrive at is usually related to happiness. So why is happiness such a central motivation for us? Yeah. Uh, Tal Ben-Shahar, who's the professor whose class I was sneaking into at Harvard, he would call this like the infinitely regressive why. Like if we, uh, if we ask why we do or care about almost anything at all, eventually if you keep asking, you're going to get around to something like happiness. Sort of if we, if we treat ourselves like, you know, a, a toddler always asking why, why, why. Eventually happiness seems to pop up and, and it seems really tricky to try and dig much further than that. At the very least, I think we'll end up circling back around to it again in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, if you try to look backward, like toward the moment of, say, something like the Big Bang in those first instants of the universe, even the laws of physics that we know seem to fall apart in, the, in those very beginnings. And happiness is similar, I think, when it comes to our motivations. It's so bedrock to who we are, that it's hard for a question like why to really penetrate that. And to be honest, I don't have an easy answer for why that seems to be such a huge motivation for us. But I think it's enough in the beginning just to have dug down that far, just to the realization that there's something in the question of happiness that like, won't budge. It seems really essential to what we're doing here in this world. I think that's such a great, uh, a great little, uh, discussion, you know, of happiness. So I suspect everybody can relate to wanting more happiness in their life, but in order to get more happiness, we really need to understand more about what happiness is. And one of the things that's very enjoyable in your book is that you really give a, a good discussion with lots of definitions of happiness, but also encourage people to give their own definition. So why is it important for each of us to define what happiness means? To us. Well, I think the most important reason is that really you're the only one who can know what happiness is to you. It's like the most quintally, quintessentially subjective thing there is. 
You know, I can sit here and tell you that researchers have mapped out the brain and found that the feeling of happiness corresponds to increasing blood flow in the left prefrontal cortex of the brain. But all that really means at the end of the day is that researchers stuck a whole bunch of people in an fMRI machine and watched their brains light up and said, now, okay, what are you feeling right now? And if you laid down, if you laid down in that same fMRI machine feeling horribly depressed and your left prefrontal cortex was lighting up like a Christmas tree and a scientist said to you, sorry, you know, our machine says you're actually really happy, you're not going to believe that for a second. You're the, you're the only one who's really qualified to make a deep assessment about what happiness is in your own life. And if, if we're going to spend so much of our lives really dedicated and driven toward our own happiness, I think it makes sense that we better have a pretty good idea about what we're aiming at. Now, for most people, I think, for me, I know, happiness sometimes seems so basic and so essential that I don't actually put that much thought into it. It's sort of like, uh, it's like asking a fish to describe what water is. But uh, I've also found that, you know, our hearts and our minds come with all these sort of quirks that make our pursuit of happiness tricky and sometimes downright counterintuitive. So really, my aim with a, a book like this and, and most of the teaching I do in workshops and one-on-one with people isn't to try and answer that question for you. Uh, I'll be honest, some days I feel like I can still barely get it answered for myself. But <laughs> yeah. what I really want is to give people some really well-tested tools that they can use to make like a, like a little laboratory out of their own lives and then answer that question in a way that only you can really approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you do. Um, I really enjoyed that experiential part of the book where there's lots of little, you know, episode, little questions and, and uh, uh, exercises for you to apply, you know, the, the things that you're talking about to ourselves. So positive psychology, which you've mentioned, um, studies the uh, uh, content and causes of happiness and has documented the many benefits of happiness. So can you just briefly review what some of that research shows? What what benefits does happiness bring to us? Sure. Uh, I want to back up just a small step just to talk about positive psychology in general, uh, which is really a relatively new branch of psychology. It's formally founded by a, a a guy named Martin Seligman, who uh, at one time was president of the American Psychological Association. And during that time, he sort of came to the realization that psychology had been, you know, for the better part of a 100 years, really focused on what goes wrong with a human life, Sort Mm -hmm. sort of how to get us from negative 10 back to zero. But the field of what goes right with a human life had been sort of neglected. Uh, Even in 1998, when the field was formally founded, we didn't have that much research into happiness and how to improve the quality of daily life. Most of what we had was very anecdotal and inspiration, although it may have been, those kind of anecdotes are are not really the foundation for a science. So uh, he and a group of like-minded folks got together to kind of push this new field into uh, psychology and, and And what they've found has been 
really very promising. I mean, it's a it's pretty substantial list, and it shouldn't be a surprise to most of us, but uh, happier people live longer. Uh, they tend to have better immune function in the sense that they don't get sick as often. Uh, happy people make more money. They are more likable. They're more resilient. They bounce back from upsets and stresses uh, quicker and, and better. And they tend to be more optimistic, all of which is, you know, great for you and I on days when we're happy. But it turns out that happiness also correlates really highly with things that are good, not just for us, but for everybody around us. You know, uh, happy people are more civically active. They're better engaged in their communities. They're more productive at work. They're more creative and problem-solving. They have stronger friendships and marriages and are more philanthropic and altruistic. Now, all these things are, are just correlations, which doesn't necessarily prove, you know, which causes which, but they're significant connections. And uh, for all of us, should should be a comfort in, in the sense that when we're pursuing our happiness, there's real benefit to be had there. And it's not inherently a selfish pursuit. I think uh, one of the most surprising and compelling things that I found in the research for this book and also in the deeper practices of the yoga tradition was how uh, social these things really are, how much our happiness really uh, intertwines us with the people around us and the communities we care about, and also how the deeper practices of yoga and the contemplative practices of meditation really reinforce this idea of deep connection. Uh, I think the stereotype or the, the myth of the solitary yogi away in a cave secluded from society, well, that may be popular and sometimes attractive. Uh, I think there's a really compelling uh, rationale for coming out of the cave and getting out into the world. Well, with that amazing list of positive benefits, it's no wonder you know, happiness is such a central motivation to us. We're coming up to our break. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with guest Sam Chase, yoga teacher and author of the book, Yoga and the Pursuit of Happiness, A Guide to Finding Joy in Unexpected Places. His website is samchaseyoga.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for Yogacharya O'Brien. When we come back from the break, we'll explore happiness as pleasure, meaning, and engagement. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Listeners, did you know we've gone mobile? That's right. Your favorite Unity online radio programs are available on your mobile device. Now you can take us with you wherever you go. Using apps from Live 365 or Stitcher, you can listen to Unity Online Radio live or on demand. To learn more, visit Unity Online Radio and click on Mobile Listening. The base of all life is the infinite wellspring of source, and each of us has a unique way of expressing that source as an individualized soul. Do you enjoy the company of inspiring people who are living on purpose? Do you 
want to live joyfully attuned to your own unique soul expression? Host Reverend Kristen Powell welcomes you to join the gathering of souls who live this way. You'll meet artists, naturalists, and other soulful expressions that will inspire you to call forth the most alive, passionate version of yourself. Get into the natural stream of your own soul by tuning into Soul Stream live every Wednesday at noon Central Time on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Listening to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. We now return to the Yoga Hour. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for the Yoga Hour's regular host, Yogacharya O'Brien. I'm joined today by Sam Chase, co-owner of Yoga to the People in New York City and author of the book, Yoga and the Pursuit of Happiness, A Guide to Finding Joy in Unexpected Places. His website, once again, is samchaseyoga.com. So, Sam, when we uh, broke off, uh, we were talking about happiness in general, and I I didn't want to leave that topic uh, without talking about the role of meditation, because I know that there's a a lot of, I mean, obviously, meditation is such a central practice of yoga, Um, and then what what role does meditation play in our sense of happiness? Well, I think, you know, meditation really at its core is uh, like a toolbox for examining the nature of our own selves and, and the world we live in. And one of the things that meditation is really a great tool for is to increase our capacity for being focused in the present moment. And not just to focus in the present moment, but to be able to focus with a, what I call a kind of compassionate self-acceptance, to be mm-hmm. at home in the present moment, which it turns out is really essential to our happiness. Uh, a researcher by the name of Matt Killingsworth did a study a few years ago where he, would g- he gave people an iPhone app that would buzz at random times throughout the day and would ask them to pause and, and say, you know, what are you thinking about right now? Are you thinking about what's happening in the present or is your mind somewhere else? And he found that about half the time, our minds tend to be wandering either back into the past or into the future. And what I found most compelling about this particular study was most of the time when our minds are wandering, those thoughts tend to be making us at least somewhat unhappy. And so it seems clear that if we can't be focused in the present moment, we're cutting ourselves off from a potential for happiness and joy and, um, our ability to be at peace or at ease with what's happening in the present moment, I think, is really the heart of it. One of my favorite quotes comes from philosopher Blaise Pascal, who said, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Um, and my favorite, possibly my favorite 
uh, research study that I came across. I'm, I'm laughing because I, I know you're, what you're going to say, and I just could not believe this study. So please go ahead and share it with our listeners. Sure. This is one that's like too good to be true um, in terms of those, for those of us who, who really want to take up a meditation practice and believe in its benefits. So uh, re, a team of researchers led by uh, Timothy Wilson did a study where they had people sit alone in a room with their thoughts and nothing else to do but think for anywhere between about six and 15 minutes. And uh, previously, they had given some of these people uh, an electric shock and said, how do you feel about that electric shock? And of course, everybody said, I hate that. That feels awful. They hated it so much, they said they would pay to avoid it in the future. So then hey, he left them alone in a room and he said, I'm going to give you 15 minutes just to be with your thoughts. Oh, by the way, on the table, there's a button. And if you feel like you want to, at any time, you can push that button and give yourself the same electric shock that you just said you hated. You don't have to. You can just sit and think if you want to, but, you know, do what you need to do. And over the course of that 15 minutes, about two-thirds of the men and about a quarter of the women shocked themselves at least once. One guy shocked himself 190 times. So it was so much they had to throw his part of the study out. They said, we don't know what's going on with him, but we can't use that data. Uh, I mean, as funny as it is and as silly as it sounds, to me that suggests that most of us have a real unease just being present with ourselves, with nothing else to do. And that's where meditation really wants to catch us. I like to say it brings us home to the present moment and helps us uh, meet it as it really is without having to run away to something else, without having to pretend or tell stories about it, just to be at home with ourselves. Right. And uh, with the increasing pace of, of our lives and of technology and all of our connectedness, I think that it's beginning to be even more of a foreign um, a place to just be at peace, you know, in the moment, be with ourselves. Um, that is an amazing study that people would rather shock themselves than just be able to be with themselves. I think it's uh, uh, maybe have um, it's a um, it's an end result of coming off of the technology. They must have left had people leave their their smartphones and <laughs> connected devices outside the room, and in that in that void, you know, that they felt after you know no longer being you know instantaneously connected to their world, um, you know, maybe a shock seemed like a good idea. So. I agree. I agree uh, wholeheartedly. And I have to say, in the last 10 years of teaching, as smartphones became sort of a, a, a rarity and a novelty and now are so ubiquitous that everybody has one and holds one constantly, um, I see that problem increasing, not decreasing. And, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as any of us, but I, I I sympathize with anyone who has had a stressful day and feels like they need to decompress and in that moment when they have a few minutes to themselves, you know, reaches for the internet or the email and, and it's, it's not helping us. You know, if we're overwhelmed, uh, and we reach to something that gives us more stimulation, uh, the mind never gets to rest. And the mind needs to learn how to rest. It's a skill that is not necessarily automatic. And if what we teach the mind all day long is to bounce from here to there to here to there again and faster and faster and faster, it 
does its best to adapt to that. And like any habit, we can get really stuck in that rut. You know, screen addiction, uh, addiction to technology, I would say, is, is a rising epidemic, uh, bordering on the point of just becoming the new normal. And I think we lose something pretty vital when that becomes our normal. So turning to a, a definition uh, that I enjoyed, you know, from the many definitions that you gave of happiness, um, the Martin Seligman definition of happiness as pleasure, meaning, and engagement spoke to me. So um, I let's start with pleasure. So I suspect that most people would include experiencing pleasure on their list of what makes them happy. Um, but you had some really interesting information about um, what we know scientifically about pleasurable experiences and how to maximize them. Sure. Uh, well, one of the quirks of pleasure, uh, which we all love, it, uh, one of its quirks is that it has a kind of diminishing return. You know, I like to say the first scoop of ice cream is, is heaven, and by the time you've eaten the whole carton, you're in hell. Um, <laughs> and and this, you know, psychologists call this this sort of fading. Uh, aspect of pleasure, hedonic adaptation. It just is a, a fancy way of saying the things that thrill us tend to wind down after a while. Um, this is part of what leads us toward uh, you know, things like addictive habits where something is really pleasurable and then we find ourselves chasing after it, trying to you know, recapture that first thrill, uh, which doesn't mean that we should be rejecting pleasures outright. I think it just means that we need to learn how to manage them. And as you say, to maximize them. So there are two things for maximizing pleasure that I think are the most important. Uh, and, and these should be really intuitive if you, if you take a moment to think about how your own life plays out. The first is variety. Uh, if we can uh, put some variety and some diversity into our pleasures, it gives our senses, ourselves, a chance to recharge around them. Uh, this is one of the reasons why if you go to a, a dinner with friends who all you know, share from each other's plates and someone else orders the same thing, you get a little frustrated because inherently you, you know you want some variety in, in your pleasure, in that meal. Uh, and the other thing that really makes a difference in maximizing our pleasure is time. If we can put a little interlude between one pleasure and, and a repeat of that pleasure, if we can sort of let the senses rest and recover and recharge, uh, that also will help us maximize our pleasure. You know, this is going to the same restaurant day in and day out will really suck the magic out of it. But, you know, once a month, once a year, especially if you give yourself a little time to anticipate it, which may feel like sometimes a delicious agony, but anticipation is one way that we can maximize our pleasure. There can be a, a joy in that. Now, what I found most fascinating in the research is that, well, variety and time both seem to be essential ways of recharging our pleasure. You don't need both at the same time, which is to say, you know, if you're planning your meals for the next year, you can imagine, um, you don't have to, you know, if there's a favorite restaurant you have and you go there once a month, you may find it's fine to order the exact same thing you love every time you go there because enough time has passed that you're recharged. But if you're in a situation where you're, um, 
you know, where time is not an option, then you want to add in a little more variety. So that was an interesting quirk that really raised my eyebrows, that we need time or variety, but not necessarily both to maximize our experience of pleasure. Right. So when we look at the uh, the other side, you know, of uh, of of trying to you know maximize our you know pleasurable experiences, there can be a desire to just hold on to them, which can then, as you've already mentioned, turn into a source of unhappiness. So, what tools does yoga provide that help us with this this ability to be not quite so attached to following our pleasure? Yeah, I think that the, uh, you know, the stereotype sometimes of the serious yogi is one of, uh, sort of denial of pleasure and pushing away all of, all of life's pleasantness and in favor of a harder road. But I think if we look to some of yoga's deepest practices, it's not so much about denial of pleasure, but a recognition of exactly as you say, the fact that pleasures have a strange hold on our psyche. They, uh, they're really compelling and we'll go to great lengths to follow them and uh, it's easy to get stuck on them. So I think what the deepest practices of yoga are really encouraging is for us to acknowledge the nature of pleasure and then to learn how to manage it well. And uh, practices like uh, meditation, I think, offer us a a nice toolbox to approach our pleasures with a sober mind, so to speak, um, in a place where we can you know, witness the nature of pleasure and sensation. We can watch it coming and going without getting so stuck on it. And to me, that's the heart of a kind of mindful meditation practice, an ability to sit in your own awareness of, pleasant, of, of the present moment and to watch experience passing through. To see the moments of attraction and the moments of aversion and to see how they all fit together to make this story that we call ourselves. And that I think is one of the, the central insights of the, of yoga philosophy. The notion that this self, this sense of self we have, which feels so much like, you know, who I am and the real me, which feels so uh, permanent, so separate, is really constantly changing along with the sea of experience coming and going and is not really so permanent or stable or separate at all. Um, and getting acquainted with what I like to call the the story of the self or how our experiences spark these little stories that build up our sense of self is a wonderful beginning to navigating through both the ups and the downsides of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the practice of reflection of uh, who am I, you know, who am I really, uh, and watching the, that definition, as you say, um, there's many things that we are superficially that change over time, you know, so if I'm my body, well, which body would it be? Was it my seven-year-old body or, you know, my 25-year-old body? I hope it was the body I had when I was about 25. (laughs) I hope that one's the real me. (laughs) And then our thoughts, as you said, and our, you know, our um, attractions to things, our desires for things and you know, watching, uh, watching them come and go. And then even the understanding that we've even talked about on this program, how, um, you know, it, it's really, um, 
you know, any pleasure that's repeated has that hedonic adaptation, you know, as you called it, which is a fancy word of just saying that we can't hold on, you know, to our pleasure mm-hmm. because the pleasure of the, of the first bite is not the same as the pleasure, you know, of the, of the, you know, last bite. And we, you know, if we have the consequence of eating the whole carton of ice cream, you know, that is definitely not as, you know, not as pleasurable. So right. yoga gives us that opportunity to really, you know, watch that and reflect on it and not have it be quite such an unconscious uh, process. And I think that can make a huge difference. You know, you, if I can step into pleasure with open eyes, knowing that along with this experience of, you know, po- real positive emotion is naturally going to come right on the, right on its heels, a sense of wanting, a sense of, of lack. And I think the the habit that many of us have is to want to get the highs of pleasure without accepting the other parts that come along with it, as if we could somehow cheat the system. But uh, when we come to it with a, a more reflective mind and meet it as it is, then I know, okay, I'm going to have this bowl of ice cream, and that will probably leave me wanting in some ways and satisfied in other ways. Mm-hmm. But then we can walk into the, the moment with you know, a real clear sense of what it really is and take the whole, uh, the whole package rather than trying to fight with the nature of our own lives. And that, for me, is, I think, the the most significant and compelling promise of a yoga practice is not a promise that yoga will make you happy, but that yoga will allow you to see your own self and your own life as it really is, and then to move skillfully through that life, uh, which is a compelling promise. So turning back to this definition of uh, yoga as, um, I like that it includes more than just pleasure. So, I'm sorry, happiness as pleasure, meaning, mm-hmm. and engagement. So turning to meaning, um, the sense that we have of making a difference in the lives of others and the world. So one way to find meaning in our lives is to find our dharma, our inner duty, or that which connects us with our inner sense of purpose. So you started out the program with a story about your own experience of getting offered what would seem a perfect opportunity and then choosing not to take it. Um, And then you came back to that story in the section of the book that you talk about dharma. So how did that experience, as you looked at it, you know, from the uh, perspective of knowing more about yoga and this concept of dharma, um, how did that relate to your finding your dharma of what you're doing right now? Well, I want to start out by saying I think the the way you describe dharma as a kind of inner duty is a perfect phrasing. Um, and, and I think in the West especially, we have a kind of troubled relationship with this word duty. It seems uh, onerous or put upon or enforced from the outside. But what I really see Dharma as is like a it's like a call to action from way inside. It's a, a, a request from our, our hearts and our souls that we really can't ignore. It comes really from the core of who we are, which, of course, is intimately intertwined with our world and our community and everything around us. So I see my own story kind of as an example of what happens when a life is off its own track. You know, in that moment when I, I got 
this amazing opportunity and then sort of puked and ran screaming for the hills, I, I had to come face to face with pretty huge parts of who I am that had been stifled for the sake of pursuing success and you know, academic honors. And uh, it really it just couldn't go on. I wish I could say that that was like an instantaneous wake-up call that, you know, I, I got up the next morning and realized exactly what I had to do and my my life was on the straight and narrow from there on out, but it didn't happen like that for me at right. all. Uh, it was years for me to even get a glimpse of what ha- was really going on in, in that moment and, and waking up to a sense of dharma. And I'm still waking up to it. I think we all are. Uh, to me, insofar as, as this idea of dharma connects to some idea of enlightenment, I think the attractive stereotype is that enlightenment happens in an interest, in an instant. And I don't, I don't disallow that maybe it can happen that way, but I know for me, whatever sense of enlightenment, whatever sense of dharma I've discovered has been a gradual process of becoming and aligning and moving through, frankly, the mess of real life and starting to listen very carefully, very deeply, not just to my own self, but my own self in relationship to the world around me. One of my favorite stories from yoga practice or from yoga philosophy is um, the story of Indra, who's, you know, one of the oldest and the biggest figures in in the sort of mythology of yoga. And uh, the story goes that Indra has cast a gigantic net over the entire universe, over all of creation. And at the points at which those fibers of the net cross each other, there's a jewel at each of those points. And those jewels are a soul, an individual consciousness. And, and there's this notion there that uh, dharma is our... Uh, requirement to sort of hold those threads, our little threads of the universe together with the power of our own self, with the jewel of our own self. And so I think of Dharma both that both as an inner quest, like starting to understand, you know, what is my little jewel made of, and also very much an outer quest, like what am I connected to? What threads of this universe am I holding on to? And how can I use my own self to hold them well so that we can all wake up together so that we can all uh, uh, hold each other up in this big net. It's one of my favorite stories of, of the whole yoga tradition. Such a beautiful image, you know, too, of, you know, what is it that you're holding, you know, on this net? Um, what's your, you know, what's your little piece of it? So the, the, the thing that people trip over, of course, that is, so how do I figure out, you know, what is, you know, my dharma? And, I enjoyed a couple of things that you mentioned in the book as um, as a ways that little clues that we can use to figure out our dharma. So one of them, um, in order to discuss one of them, first we need to talk about uh, the uh, aspect of Seligman um, uh, that Seligman included in the definition of uh, engagement, which has to do with a process called flow. Um, so let's just step back from the Dharma conversation just a minute, talk about flow, and then we'll talk about how flow can then give us clues as to our Dharma. So um, what um, what is flow, and how can we tell when we're experiencing flow? Sure. 
So flow is a, a, a simple word for a, a state of deep psychological absorption, which people often reflect back on afterwards as some of their peak experiences, moments of... Uh, moments of great meaning, moments of real aliveness. Uh, we've all had these kind of experiences, experiences where we're functioning at our fullest. So these are not necessarily, you know, rare or mystical states that are for a privileged few. These are a, a fundamental part of our human experience, a deep state of, of psychological absorption. And these have actually been rigorously studied in psychology. And, and they've found that flow has some fairly consistent effects. So these are some ways that you can like know it when it's happened to you. Uh, one is that time seems altered when we're in this state of absorption. These are the moments in our lives when the minutes last for hours and the hours just fly by. Uh, it's like we've fallen out of time. The second effect of flow is a, a quality of what I call effortless effort, a uh, feeling that everything is in the right place at the right time. Uh, this often happens, you know, in sports or athletic or, or physical activities where it's like if you're in a dance, your feet just land where they need to be. If you're playing, you know, basketball, you've got a hot hand. The shot just goes right where it needs to go or the pass is perfectly timed. The third effect of, of a flow state is that in these places, the sense of self seems to vanish. It's like we become the action that we're doing. And this is why I say like people often look back on them as their most meaningful or peak experiences because in the moment, it's almost like you're not really there. You become the action and are so fully immersed that there's no space mentally for all the things the mind has to do to feel like a self the way we normally do throughout the day, which is part of what I think makes flow experiences, even though they're active and outwardly engaged with the world, very, very similar to meditation experiences. Uh, neurologically, there's a lot of similarities, even though meditation is very introspective, whereas flow is very expressive. I think they're built out of some of the same neurological uh, material, so to speak. Now, the final piece of, of the effect of flow, and the one that I think is most important for those of us in the pursuit of happiness, is that after a flow experience, after our sense of self has kind of been dissolved into action, the sense of self returns. And when it returns, we come back a little transformed. We're not quite the same. It can be as simple as you know, deep conversation with someone that you get totally absorbed in. And after you know, the, the hours of conversation, you come away feeling somehow new or altered. Or an example from my own life, because my daughter was just born 10 days ago, in the experience of uh, labor and delivery, both my wife and I were not just physically transformed, but I came out feeling like a new and different person. The sense of self I walked through the door with is altered by the experience. And I would say in many ways expanded by the experience. The self gets broader. It, it fits more of life into it. 
uh, which to me really speaks to a fundamental process that I think the yogis have always been interested in. If you imagine our day-to-day experience kind of as a graph, you know, it goes up high into our really pleasurable moments, it goes way down low when we're, you know, in the dumps and depressed, and it fluctuates all in between. And there's like this bandwidth, a, a ceiling and a floor, and inside that bandwidth, we feel like our self is okay. We feel comfortable as who we are. And when we get outside our comfort zone, when we get too depressed, uh, or we, even when we get too happy, we'll tend to behave in a way that tries to squish life back into this neat little box we call ourselves. And the yogis have always proposed that we do it a very different way. Instead of trying to squish life back into this box called us, they're asking us to engage in all of these exercises and experiences that expand our sense of self so that we can fit life as it really is with all of its natural highs and lows. And these flow experiences seem essential to doing exactly that. I call it like home renovation for the self. Mm-hmm. Uh, so beautiful. Um, so when we're talking about Dharma, uh, uh, one of the things that I, uh, that I enjoyed was this idea that we can identify, you know, look in our lives and see where have our peak experiences been and then look for, you know, so what is it about, you know, that experience that it was feeding? What component of ourselves, you know, was, was that experience feeding? And in that way, our flow experiences can be a clue then to what, you know, what feels most central to ourselves, um, this sense of uh, inner duty or dharma. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree yeah. more. So we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, there are so many things that we can, uh, you know, turn to discussing on this last few minutes. But let's just touch briefly on this yoga uh, concept, uh, importance of selfless service, um, and how serving others um, does as you alluded to earlier, you know, uh, our happiness is not necessarily just, you know, affecting ourselves, but it's also our connection, you know, in the world. So what do we know about the connection, you know, between seva, um, selfless service, um, you could describe that as altruism, and, and happiness? Sure. Just in the last, I think sure. we've only got about a minute, so I'm sorry to to... to <laughs> To constrain your well, answer, but just in the last we're minute. Saving, then we're saving the best for last, because I think yeah. the most, both the most compelling research and the most profound yoga practices like Seva are the ones that get us outside of our own selves, off our meditation cushion, and engaged with the world around us. Uh, there's abundance of research that shows how volunteering increases our happiness to say nothing of the folks around us. And if I were, you know, I think for me, this is one of yoga's boldest challenges, to combat the kind of me-first mentality that permeates so much of our culture. Seva teaches us that loving others is an essential part of how we learn to love ourselves, that we don't have to learn to love ourselves before we can be of help to someone else. Uh, we can't separate our self-love from caring for our neighbors in exactly the same way. And I would say, Seva teaches us that we learn about who we are and how to care for ourselves through the act of caring for uh-huh. other selves. And, that, and it just reaffirms that deep connection.
Well, sorry about the uh, momentary loss of connection. Um, you've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, sitting in for Yogacharya O'Brien. We've been discussing realizing happiness through yoga with special guest Sam Chase, co-owner of Yoga to the People in New York City and author of the book Yoga and the Pursuit of Happiness, a guide to finding joy in unexpected places. His website is samchaseyoga.com. Thank you again, Sam Chase, for joining us. It's been a wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Join us next week for the dawn of yoga in the West and the transformation of the religious landscape, which is an encore episode from uh, June 16th, 2011, when Phil Goldberg, author of the book American Veda, joined Yoga Acharya O'Brien for an insightful look at how yoga has not only inspired but transformed the way we experience religion and spirituality. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Uh, for more information about the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, visit csecenter.org. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast at iTunes. I look forward to being with you again when Yogacharya O'Brien is away. Until then, remember... You carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all that you meet. Thank you for tuning in to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Join us every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, for practical, purposeful methods for spiritually conscious living every day. The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by friends and members of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California, a ministry in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization, www.csecenter.org. Request free literature by writing info at csecenter.org. the peace and joy promised by A Course in Miracles? Or are you still struggling to truly live your beliefs from moment to moment? Let Rev. Jennifer Hadley help you focus on your intent to be the love, be the peace through practical application by walking your talk. Experience the healing live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central on A Course in Miracles, Living the Love, Walking the Talk, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Even if it's something you've done before, you can still choose to see it as if it were the first time. Why not look at your life with the eyes of a child? Children radiate joy and enthusiasm because everything they see and do is new to them. They are filled with awe. We can live in a world of wonder, too. The thoughts we think and hold in our mind do affect our lives. Remember, choose to think on things that are lovely and beautiful, 
and you will see your own world blossom and transform. Today, awake to the radiant beauty of every experience as if for the first time and see the positive changes in your world. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. The benefits of spiritually conscious living start now. For a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential, tune in to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 